0: atmosphere here. The Lord is good and present. It's wonderful. Uh, For those of you who are visiting and I've never met you, welcome to Summit. I'm Kim. I'm one of the campus pastors. Gavin is the other campus pastor. And uh, it's great that you're here visiting with us. And for those of you who are returning, who are um, alumni, hi, if I haven't seen you yet. I'm seeing some of you, and it's really great to see you. Hugs to you. Okay. Well, here we are in Dwelling Among Us, our series, Dwelling Among Us. And we have been looking at the impact of Jesus uh, as he reveals himself to individuals as presented in the book of John. And so the first week, we, we, looked, we took a look at John chapter 1. We started off strong in chapter 1 and taking a look and really breaking down what it meant for God to actually take on skin, to be uh, divine and yet human. And that John presents John 1 as the lens in which all the rest of the chapters in John are to be read. And then last week, uh, Jesus, well, he was, he was here. Um, (laughs) Catherine was talking about Jesus and uh, that, and the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. And it's a conversation that, Made that in theory made sense, right? It would make sense that a leader or a rabbi would talk to a bit of an outrageous teacher, a bit of a, you know, like, you know, someone who's going off the beaten path. It would make sense that that rabbi would talk to Jesus. However, the contents of the conversation didn't make sense. Remember that from last week? If you were here last week, there was a lot of confusion. And um, and I always appreciate that when Gavin gets, like, really passionate, he always, like, it's like this. Um. <laughs> you do. <laughs> no. But you go up on your tippy toes. Okay. Um. <laughs> so anyways, um, so we were seeing that uh, there is this massive confusion that, um, that Nicodemus was having. And, uh, and, and, and John, like, uses, uses these beautiful language and these literary techniques, um, and he's, he's talking about how Nicodemus and Jesus has this conversation, like, in the darkness of night, right? And actually, we leave this chapter in chapter 3 in the conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus kind of not knowing what actually happens with the conversation. And um, because of John's um, literary you know, finesse. Um, finesse? Who uses finesse? Does anybody use the shampoo finesse? No. No. Of course not. That's like dollar store shampoo. Ooh. Um, anyways, because of his like li- literary technique, um, it's a great start, Kim. Uh, <laughs> So we see that because they're in the dark, right? They're still, like, the conversation still continues to be in the darkness of night. We're sort of left with this idea that perhaps Nicodemus really didn't get the point because of this, like, tone that's being set. Like, he's still in in the dark about Jesus. And then we move into chapter 3. And so now we have, um, while we, we are moving a chapter... Uh, or maybe you're turning a page, while we have that, we do have some movement that's happening in the narratives. And so just a few things to note as we, as we continue on. So first off, Jesus moves location. So he goes and uh, he's now from, he's going from Galilee and now he's going into Samaria. This is a big deal. Then we see Jesus moving the kind of conversation. So the kind of conversation that he had with Nicodemus is a socially acceptable one. The kind of conversation that he has with the woman in chapter 4 is actually a social, like, inappropriate. Um, It's not a conversation that would have ever been expected for him to have. And then we see this movement of this literary finesse of darkness to light. We see that in Nicodemus, uh, with the conversation with Nicodemus, it's in the darkness, it's at nighttime, we leave us wondering, but in John chapter 4, the conversation starts at high noon, right? We are in the brightest part of our day, and John gives us an indication that there is, that somebody's going to get a clue, like somebody is going to be in the light by the end of the story, and then we see this final movement that's taking place in, from chapter 3 to chapter 4. And it's this movement of the application of Jesus' teaching. So in chapter 3, we had Jesus um, say to Nicodemus that God so loved the world, right? That he said his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. There's more to it, but you know it. And he says, whoever believes in him. And so we have this teaching But then in chapter 4, we have this movement where Jesus actually shows what that looks like. He actually puts it into application. So then we have our chapter 4. And this chapter is the most, like, charged story of race and socio-inequality and gender inequality. It's rich, rich. And so we see in this story these, these big components, these big social issues, these taboo topics. And yet, the story is not about the topics at all. The story is about Jesus, his spirit moving, and how Jesus actually addresses the issue uh, by his presence. So there's my introduction. Let us go to the text. So John chapter 4, starting at verse 1. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had gone through Samaria. Sorry, now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sikar near the plot of the ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down at the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, "'Will you give me a drink?' His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Then uh, the Samaritan woman said to him, "'You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman.'" How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself and did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus said to her, "'You are right when you say you have no husband. In fact, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. "'Sir,' the woman said, "'I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem.' Jesus declared, "'Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem.' You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The women said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I am who you say I am, or I I who speak am he. Then let's jump over to verse 39. There's a little interlude there with the disciples, but we're just going to let that be. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We, have now, uh, we now have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Lord, we thank you for this incredible conversation Lord, would we hear what you would have for us to, to know and to learn and to receive from your word tonight. Amen. So, a little bit more context for you. So, Samaria. After the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel to the Assyrians, many Jews were uh, departed and were taken to Syria. Syria. And foreigners were brought into their land to help keep the land and help keep peace. So, as a result of people coming into the land, and there was some, there's like a remnant of people that were stayed in the land. There were Jews that stayed, but then there were other people that came in. So, because of that, there was intermarriage that happened, and and so between those foreigners and and Jews, because there was intermarriage, there is now this mixed race. And so, these the pure Jews hated the mixed race called Samaritans because they felt that they, f- they um, their fellow Jews didn't actually follow God's law and that they betrayed um, their people and their nation and God. And in fact, if you take a look at like the post-exilic um, texts, you will see there's some really harsh words towards these pe- particular people. So the Samaritans, what they did is because they were getting... Um, such harsh critic critique, they rejected um, the writings of the prophets as well as the wisdom literature, and what they did is they focused simply on the Pentateuch. So the um, because the prophets and wisdom literature was more about the Davidic lineage, which they weren't now a part of, they they like pushed that aside and decided that they were not going to follow that that was not for them and so they only they only followed the pentateuch so uh, this was something that made them very significantly different as people of faith So what they also did to make them distinct was instead of, as the Jews, uh, as it mentions in our text, the Jews set up their uh, temple in Jerusalem. That was the place of worship where the Samaritans set up their place of worship on Mount um, Gerizim. And so Mount Gerizim is the very first place that Abraham had set up an altar It is also the place that when the Israelites um, came into Canaan with um, the leadership of Joshua, that's where they, like, went. That was, like, their muster point. Okay? So that was, like, that was a really big deal. So they have their temple at Mount Gerizim, and it parallels the temple in Jerusalem. However... Through history and all of the disdain between the two different people groups um, the Jews actually destroyed their temple on Mount Gerizim and that was about 150 years prior to this conversation and so Jesus steps into Samaria and I am I am certain and so I'll just say a quick note of this but um We've probably all heard maybe a sermon on this text before, and we know that Samaritan's Jews didn't like, they, didn't, they avoided each other like the plague. And so to, for, a, for a Jewish man to go through this town and to go through this area in Samaria is unheard of. They would take a different route. So this is very much unheard of that he would feel compelled that he had to go through Samaria. And so when he goes through Samaria, there is, like, incredible tension that's, like, smoldering. Like, there could be, like, you know when you're looking at a bonfire and it's, like, smoldering and, like, one, one like, and it's, like, up in flames? Like, that's the, t- there's such tension in the air in this setting because there is such hatred among these two groups of people. And so... As I mentioned, Jews did all they, they could to travel in alternate routes to get around Samaria. And the Samaritans were quite happy about that. They didn't want Jews to be around at all either. And so there was this like, you know, agreed upon disdain <laughs> for each other. However, uh, Samaritans did have, they, they experienced a great deal of uh, inequality um, as a result of being uh, considered um, less than, really. They were considered less than. But Jesus had to go to Samaria, and he had to meet. And as he had to go to Samaria, he met a woman. And it says in our text that she is a Samaritan woman. And that means that she, she's a holder of all, all the history She bears all of the history, all of the pain, all of the language, the religion, and the attitudes of the Samaritans. She's very important as an individual, but she's also a representative of these people. And she represents a great deal of experienced inequality. So, for a first century reader of this text... It's barely expected that Jesus and the woman would actually acknowledge each other's presence at the well, let alone have a conversation. And yet Jesus had to go through Samaria. This is Jesus living out what he will empower his followers and us to do later on. So in Acts chapter one, verse eight, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. He is exemplifying here exactly what he is commanding his followers and for us to do. He's living out that example. So Jesus has a plan for the Samaritans, he has a plan for them to know, for them to, be, to hear the gospel. And while this group would have hated Jesus, not because he's personally offended them, but because he's a Jewish man, while he would have, um, they would have hated him, he has a plan for them. And their plan, his, sorry, his plan is completely pivotal on this woman. This woman has been chosen by Christ. See, Jesus crosses over geographic and ethnic and gender boundaries, and he completely breaches the social etiquette, completely breaches it. And he has, actually, the longest one-on-one theological conversation that is written down with this woman. And it's a conversation with a Samaritan woman. Now, we often, as Westerners, we have a context about who this woman is, right? We often think that she is a wrongdoer, right? She's of ill repute. Um, but there is some tension out there within commentaries and within, among theologians who this woman actually is. So often we hear that she is a prostitute. However, there are some that would suggest that perhaps she's been incredibly misjudged. Um, some might say that, in fact, like because we, we we sort of attach like she's a prostitute, but she's also been like she's also divorced her husbands because she's had multiple husbands, so therefore she must have divorced her husbands and then somehow become. A prostitute right like we make that equation about who this person is well in fact it's actually really really difficult in first century um, for a woman to actually divorce her husband it's quite quite easy or much easier for a man to, to divorce his wife but for a woman to divorce her husband is actually very difficult to do and so this challenges the concept that she is a shameless woman. Uh, rather, it is suggested that perhaps she is a widow, which changes the context a little bit about what we think about this woman. And one might say, well, Kim, that's a really big stretch that one person would be married to five people and all of them died. That's a bit of a stretch. Perhaps, however, let me draw your attention to Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, we have some teachers who are trying to bait Jesus. And, he sa- and they say to him, there's a man who got married, and he died. And since he didn't have any kids, then, um, and he didn't have any kids left, his wife was given to his brother. Do you remember this story? And then, and then he died, and they didn't have kids, so then he gave him to his brother. And then he died, and then he gave him to his brother. How weird that that like cultural thing that's so strange to me but like so and it's not like this like random random suggestion like what about this seven people got married to the same woman like it's probably a bit of a hyperbole like a bit of a stretch this seven however the concept is obviously present within the culture because women tended to get married earlier Men tended to get married later. And so there is this potential that this woman has actually, in fact, had a husband who died, and she had another husband who died. Like these are these are potentials. So it's likely that she could be a woman, or obviously she's a woman, a widow. <laughs> Surprise, <laughs> she's a woman! Gender reveal. <laughs> pink balloon okay so she could be a widow but she could also have just been abandoned right she could have been abandoned or or been abused or and so she she knows and she knows what it is to be left whether that's however route that went she knows what it is to be left to be unwanted to be tossed aside and to actually be very poor, because this woman would have been extremely poor. Which, So some might say that, in fact, the, the man that she's living with now is actually more like potential. Again, potential. This is just who knows, but this is a potential. That, in fact, she might have been living with a family member who's taken her and taken care of her. Because she doesn't, she's a, she's a woman, she doesn't have a job. And this is the cultural standard that families would take a woman because she doesn't, she's not able to sustain living on her own. And so we see that like even this woman, whether she's, whether she has been, whether she is a woman of ill repute and would have been shunned by her society and her, her city, or whether she is not a woman of ill repute but has been shunned by a great deal of people who have read this story, um, the fact of the matter is is that she's a woman who knows sorrow and isolation. And, and it's in high noon, in broad daylight, where everything is seen. And Jesus sees her and chooses her. And while she would have been, like it says that it's high noon, uh, she's gone to the well, uh, if you've heard a sermon on this text, you would have heard that it is likely that most women would have gotten their water either in the morning or in the evening. And it's likely that if she, if she went to get her water at high noon, that she's going at low traffic time, right? It's like going shopping at Costco. Well, never, because it's always busy. <laughs> Um, but like she's going at low traffic time because she's avoiding the social scene. The the well is in fact the watering hole. It is the water cooler for the women of the city. That's where they socialize. And so she is literally avoiding social interaction. Whether it's because shameful behavior or whether it's because she feels the shame of not being A woman like she wanted to be, she's avoiding social interaction. And that is the woman that Jesus chooses. To have a very long chat about theology and to reveal who he really is. That's the woman that he chooses. Now, she would have maybe been pitied by others, but not Jesus. We'll look at the tone of Jesus as he has talks a little bit later. But what Jesus does is he actually gives her authority. He gives her authority that she has never known in her entire life. And if I could just park here for a second, a little bit more. Let's just talk about the woman a little bit more. It's not really, the story really isn't about the woman, but it's important. She is not Jesus' second choice. This is not happenstance. It's not like whoops-a-daisy, I can't make it that much further, so I have to be at this well. Yes, he's tired, but he chose to stop at the well. He chose to go where the women are. He literally chose to go where the women are because he wanted a woman. He wanted to talk to a woman, and he wanted to talk to this woman. Yeah, he chooses her first. He chooses her, this woman, to be the very first communicator of the gospel. He chooses her to be the first communicator of the gospel. You know, I'm just going to, I've just felt this in my spirit lately. There's been some wonky, wonky teaching about men and women about like biblical male manhood and womanhood there's some there's some really wonky teaching out there and quite frankly it gets me going um, <laughs> but i will save that for another time at an at a, at a individual conversation but i do i i i feel compelled to note jesus chose a woman to go and share the gospel. That does not mean that there is some sort of hierarchy of women to men. What he's doing is he is writing things. We see later on that it's not just about her as a woman, but her as a Samaritan. But he is writing things and how people see other people. He's writing things. And so he has chosen a woman to share the gospel. And there is some wonky teaching out there that God does not give women the authority to teach. Let me tell you, that is incorrect hermeneutics. God has given men and women equally authority to preach the gospel. He's showing it right here, okay? So... So here we are, this woman that Jesus has chosen to speak to. And he says to her, oh, he says, let's have a drink. Well, first he asks her for a drink. And even to ask her for a drink is to give her authority because he would, he's choosing to speak to her to so acknowledge her presence. And then he, you know, he says, well, whoever drinks this water will never thirst again, right? This back and forthness about water. Well, you should give me water. Could you give me water? If you asked, if you knew who was asking you water, you'd want this water. Whoever drinks of this water will never thirst again. And you notice there's like this back and forthness, right? This like table tennis conversation that was happening with Nicodemus as well because there's this like I'm not quite getting it but we see this back and forthness and so Jesus says whoever drinks this water will never thirst again so here we're sitting at the well and Jesus asks her for a drink and he says she and she calls him out on this she knows she knows what's appropriate and that Jesus is kind of out of line she calls him out on it. And he said, and she says, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Like this is a social no-no here. And he, and he just continues on. And he dwells with her. He dwells with her and acknowledges her presence. And then he says in turn, if, if you knew the gift of God and who asked you for this drink, you would have asked him for this living water. So, What is Jesus talking about when he says living water? Well, the Old Testament speaks a lot about living water. So I'd like to share a couple of of texts with you that that talk about living water. So Psalm 42, 1, you may know it. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for you, my God. In Isaiah 55, verse 1, we see... Um, God is talking through Isaiah, and he says, come all of you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost, so it's giving freely. Jeremiah 2 verse 13 says, my people have committed two sins, they have forsaken me, the springs of, they've forsaken me and the springs of living water and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And Zechariah says, on the day of, on that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will cleanse them from their sins and impurity. We also see that God is called the fountain of life. So again, living water, a fountain in Psalm 36, verse 9, it says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Jeremiah 17, 13 says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. And so in saying, that he would bring living water, what Jesus is saying is that he can forever quench a person's thirst for God. And it is only the Messiah who could quench a person's thirst for God. So in saying that he has living water and that he could quench the thirst of one's soul for God, that in fact he is saying he is the Messiah. But then we have this back and forth again. But how are you going to get this water? You don't have a ladle. She doesn't say ladle. That was a bit of a joke. <laughs> you don't have a ladle. Um, still nothing. Okay. <laughs> so uh, we see here, you have you've got nothing to draw this water with, and and like like Nia, or like Nicodemus, she's she, she's trying to like get there. She's trying to get there, right? Like Nicodemus was like, so I'm supposed to get back in my mother's womb, right? Like, what am I? Am I supposed to do this? Like, you don't have a ladle, right? Like, there's this trying, but it's not quite there yet. But Jesus asks these questions or makes these statements that invite the listener from an earthly thought to a heavenly reality. And this is the back and forth that's struggling. This is the struggle of the conversation. And so this is my, like, just question for you. Is God doing that with you? Like, is he offering you a question or a statement? And you're like, but I don't have a ladle. Like, and you're trying to get that thought of where God's going, and we're thinking more earthly But what he's compelling us to do is think heavenly, thinking with our spirit. And so my question is, is is God doing that? If he's compelling you, maybe we need to think earth or heavenly and with our spirit. So anyways, Jesus, he is talking about living water. And she asks, well, where can you get this living water Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as he did and also his sons and his livestock? So living water, it actually is moving water. That's what makes living water living water is it's moving water. It's a spring, it's a river, it's a, you know, a stream. That's living water. Other water stood still like a cistern or like a well so living water, moving, not living water, but one wouldn't call it dead water, but just not living water, is still water. So everybody in this city knows there is no moving water. There is no moving water in this city. So how on earth is he supposed to find this living water, which would be moving water? Again, thinking earthly, where is this moving water you speak of? And then the thought goes, well, how on earth could a Jewish outsider know where this living water might be? How are you any different? Like, how are you more than Jacob, who dug this well, who made this well for us? And Jesus is compelling her. Think heavenly. Like, come on, lady. Like, you're almost there. He's almost there. Jesus desires for her to know that he, in fact, is the Messiah and that the Spirit of God, he wants the Spirit of God to be alive in her. So this idea of water is now like a new like, theme, theme within John, right? We see it. It's actually noted in John 1. So this isn't brand new. It's just now highlighted And so John 1 talks about the importance of baptism. So why these two things collide, living water, baptism, is living water or moving water was considered the water to be used in baptism. It's the purifying water. Water that stood still is not purifying water. Water that was moving, living water, is purifying water and was used in baptism. It made pure worshipers. Later, in chapter 7, in verses 37 and 39, it says, Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he means the Spirit. So rivers of living water defined by the, is defined by the movement of the Holy Spirit. It's like a baptism, if you will the layers of what Jesus is saying to this woman is so rich. And so uh, here we have this conversation between Jesus and this woman, and he takes the promise of living water even further. And it's not, it's not a simple experience that he's wanting that changes the state. It says it is not, um, not just a simple drink that will make you new make this new well, like the woman is asked, but it's a dynamic experience that makes a life living as the water itself. The, the being becomes alive just like the living water. Therefore, the spirit is engaged as the Holy Spirit. This is huge. This is huge. Oh, so then, Um, So then as the water, um, it talked about how, so in verse 14, but whoever drinks of this water I give them, they will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So then this word well up, like it's rich, right? Oh my goodness, all of this stuff. Don't you love this? I love this. I hope you love this too. Anyways, this idea of welling up, this word well up used in the Old Testament in the Septuagint is the word that's that's attached to the Holy Spirit welling up or leaping on a leader like David. See how it's not, this isn't just about water. This isn't just about this conversation with Jesus. This is about jesus spirit moving in this woman and this is what he wants to get to oh how exciting so it's quite a dramatic image right that the holy spirit can transform her through by this living water the holy spirit can transform her this woman who knows so much lack is being offered so much abundance it's amazing and she responds with, sir, give me this water so I won't have to, like, carry this jug no more. Right? And she, she doesn't get it yet. She doesn't get it yet. It's about her soul, not about her walk from the well to the town. So Jesus is, finally creates an opportunity. Like, okay, it's back and forth and back and forth. Let's, like, move this train along. Lady, go get your husband. <laughs> And so she says, I have no husband. Well, correct. What you have said is right. You have no husband. In fact, you have had five. And the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Of course. He said that you had lots of husbands. That's, of course he's a prophet. That's a big deal to say that. It's a really big deal to say that. It's so, it's so crazy. Okay, notice for a second that Jesus, how he responds to her, that you had, you've had like five husbands, but the one that you're with right now is not your husband. Notice there's no condemnation in there. No condemnation at all. He doesn't even say like what he will say later on in John, which we will take a look at. He doesn't even say his famous, go and sin no more. He doesn't say that. Interesting. Anyways, what she does this is a very awkward moment right but she leans in and remains in the light and, and she says you're a prophet now samaritans they didn't believe in the prophets remember that they didn't believe in the prophets so now she's calling this guy a prophet hmm interesting i think so so what she would what she would then re- be thinking about likely is in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. It says this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among them, or from among their fellow, sorry, let me try that again. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command you. This text is about the Messiah, This text is about the future Messiah on the final days. This woman saying, you must be a prophet, jumped to this text about the Messiah. She like bumbles into this declaration that yes, you're a prophet, but in fact, you are the Messiah. And she's now making this connection a little bit clumsily. That he, in fact, is the Messiah. That he, in fact, can reconcile her and her people. That, uh, now, it blows her mind a little bit that the Messiah would be a Jewish man coming to a Samaritan woman. And this causes her to wonder, well, then, well, what about all this? Where do we do with worship? How do we do this? Because we worship on Mount Gerizim. You worship in Jerusalem. Who's right here? right? And this is so beautiful. It's now the time. It's now time. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The question is no longer about Jews and Samaritans. It's no longer about it. Jesus has leveled that. He is working in the lives of all people, like it says in John 1, in all people and desires all people to worship him, like it says in John 1, to, d- to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so through the dwelling of Jesus, and through the continued power of the Holy Spirit, the worshiping of God and the work of God is no longer about ethnic backgrounds. It's no longer about location and geography. It's no longer about gender. It's no longer about status. All of that has been wiped away through Jesus Christ who dwells among us. So at, it's absolute, midday, right? Bright, bright, bright. Light bulbs are going on, right? So this woman, <laughs> this woman says, I know that the Messiah is coming and that he will come and he will explain everything. Jesus says, I am the one speaking to you. I am he. I am the Messiah for her, for her people, for all people He is the Messiah. She doesn't just receive living water, she receives the Spirit of God. She is called child of God because of her belief. For all those who believe will be called children of God. And because she believes, she's called child of God, she receives authority. Now, authority, godly authority, is not authority that hangs over other people like we might understand authority to be. The authority of God unites us so that we move with the Spirit of God, the authority of the Spirit together, united. It does not create levels of distinction. This woman now is given authority and is now leveled so that all her people would know and come to know the saving grace of god the messiah it's so rich this is so rich hey beautiful <sighs> so this conversation you know i spent a lot of time talking about the woman and her and her not her issues but her issues what what she's holding and this this text makes me um, hold, like pause for a second because what we could do is we could like when we address life we could think through the issues right we could we could get fixated on a person and it could go both it could go two different ways it could go where we miss Jesus and what he is indwelling in their life and we could be a critic But we could see another person, we could miss Jesus, and we could become a spokesperson. But our challenge is this, to see Jesus and to be an ambassador. That's our challenge. People who actually dwell among people like Jesus dwelt among people. I'm going to ask the band to come on up. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Verse 18 to 20 says this. All this is from God, who reconciled us to him through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. See, if we, we are called to be ambassadors, we are called, like we have experienced, we have experienced that conversation with Jesus where he looks at us in our issues and he says, I see you, I don't condemn you, I love you, I will give you living water. We've experienced that. My, my hope, at least, is we have experienced that. And after we experience that, we are then called to be ambassadors, to do the same, to share the conversation To share the Spirit of God with people. But my friends, we cannot do that if we've got a stinky old well, if our souls are broken cisterns. We need the Spirit of God to be moving in our lives. We need the Holy Spirit to be moving in our lives. If you were here on Monday, Rob preached up a storm and really compelled us to seek the Holy Spirit. My friends, we we need the Holy Spirit. We desperately need the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit changed this woman, changed her city, changed the world. And we need that. If we're going to be ambassadors, if we're sitting in this room, we're called to be ambassadors. We need the Holy Spirit. If we're going to go and preach the gospel and witness to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the world, we need the Holy Spirit. I'm going to invite you to stand. And and I'm going to just open up the altar and say, if you actually are just like desperately need the Holy Spirit to make a move in your life, would you come? If you don't know what it is to actually experience the living water of the movement of God in your life, would you come? Seek the Holy Spirit. He has so much for you. Would you let the movement of the Holy Spirit baptize you? So the the band is going to lead us, but I encourage you allow the Holy Spirit to move in you. Perhaps that means bringing you to a place of confession, where maybe you've seen people and you've been a critic, or maybe you've seen people and you've been a bit of a salesperson. But maybe you need to be you need some conv- conviction or. Uh, to confess but allow the holy spirit to speak to you and let's let's seek him hey